What's up, family? You're tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. On today's show, Kenyon Farrow, Managing Director of Advocacy and Organizing at Prep for All, as well as Juba Kalamka, the HIV Services Director and Prep Linkage to Care Navigator at San Francisco's St. James Infirmary. The reason why we're in this situation of even having to message specifically to you, you know, the LGBTQ community is basically based on the government failure to roll out uh, vaccines and treatments and testing on time, right? Because this is not a virus that is particular to the rainbow mafia, if you will. Uh, so viruses will find a host. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Returning our attention now to the impact of MPV on the LGBTQ community, we are joined this morning by Kenyon Farrow, Managing Director of Advocacy and Organizing at Prep for All. Good morning, Kenyon. Good morning. Glad to be here. Uh, and also Juba Kalamka, the HIV Services Director and PrEP Linkage to Care Navigator at San Francisco's St. James Infirmary. Good morning, Juba. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, I'm going to start with you, Kenyon. Um, when I first started hearing about MPV, it was it just described as a virus you could catch from skin-to-skin contact. And then I feel like I woke up, and mind you, I was lightweight on vacation, so I wasn't tracking the news uh, every day. But it really felt like I almost overnight spread of MPV uh, was being blamed on the LGBTQ community, gay men in particular. What happened? Yeah, well, I think that uh, the place to really place the blame is that the federal government's really terrible response to what we already saw was an outbreak of monkeypox in the United States in early May. And due to a kind of a wait and see, you know, attitude, which is something that is completely counter to, you know, anything you should do in public health, we ended up with an outbreak, um, you know, particularly among you know, gay and bisexual and, and queer men in the United States um, that is now still raging while we still struggle to get vaccines out and struggle to get the treatment to people who uh, are facing really excruciating symptoms from this virus. And so for me, uh, while we certainly are seeing the kind of early impact of this on gay and bisexual men, uh, it certainly won't necessarily stay there as infectious diseases go. And, and secondly, we really should be turning our attention to what I think the real story is, which is how our public health system in the United States is failing. Oh, yeah, we're going to get there for sure. Juba, anything you'd like to, to add to the answer to that question? Yeah, I would say that uh, to, in my experience, because I'm working in a clinic that serves current and former sex workers in an overlapping uh, context, a front-facing context of houseless persons, injection drug users, uh, transgender nonconforming community, uh, all marginalized communities, just the conversations that uh, have been politicized around this in terms of what people think makes them safe. So when we say gay or bisexual men, men who have sex with men, we create a context of, of, of this conversation where people have a space where they like to imagine that this is not something that would affect them, or even more pointedly, that this is something that will affect people who deserve to be affected. 
um, in the ways that it is and that, that, it, that, that it doesn't matter. And that's been an ongoing conversation that I've had with the public and with uh, clients about their experiences of, of, of this epidemic. Uh, I agree absolutely with what Kenyon has to say about that, about how this did not have to be happening. The messaging from the federal government, the way that it was rolled out, was absolutely inappropriate, sloppy, and at, at best. And then uh, what, the, what it creates in terms of the ongoing conversation once that's gotten out into the public in terms of how we're able to, to serve people um, in, the, in the context of waiting for vaccines and other advocacy that have not reached us yet. Let's, let's keep our attention on the federal government for a second. Kenyon, your organization, Prep for All, has a link to a petition to the federal government on your website. Time you log on, it's there. Um, I want to talk through the message to President Biden and Secretary Becerra. Let's, let's start with, with what's happening around testing and ability for people to get tests um, and, and the demands uh, around what needs to be happening with testing. And then, Juby, you can localize it. So one of the things that, you know, we are demanding at Prep for All is that, one, that the government just really, um, you know, steps up uh, to deal with um, this crisis. Monkeypox is not a new virus. We've known about this virus for 50 years. And while this particular, what we call clade or a sort of strain of the virus uh, may be newer, but was recognized in 2017 in Nigeria, and the world still didn't do anything about it, so we should not black be people. In a, you're right. It's absolutely because it's black people yeah. and a black physician researcher in Nigeria was the one who, who sort of called the world's attention to it in 2017. And so we should not be in this position with a virus that is as old as it is. Um, but it was really a, a lack of, of investment in uh, getting ahead of it. So in terms of testing, um, one of the things that we're, you know, calling for is just that the federal government um, uh, invests in uh, both the communication about monkeypox uh, testing, treatment, and vaccine availability. Um, to one of the things that we really need, since the federal government did sort of declare monkeypox a uh, public health uh, emergency, uh, we're hoping that Congress will allocate some emergency funds. Uh, to monkeypox so that we begin to see more access to testing. I know people, I'm based in, in Cleveland, Ohio, and I know people who are calling our county public hospital system and saying that they're being, you know, told that they can't test them. And I, I know that they actually can test them, but the kind of resources uh, that um, public health systems, hospitals, and clinics need to get people in the door to get tested um, still doesn't really exist. And we are now pushing four months almost into this uh, epidemic uh, or this, this sort of outbreak. So that's the first piece. The other thing is to um, have more demographic data available from people who are currently being tested because we still are just beginning to get a picture of the kind of racial disparities in um, you know, monkeypox. We're beginning to see some jurisdictions that are declaring um, their kind of demographic data. We're seeing that it's largely black and brown folks who are uh, being diagnosed with monkeypox. And then lastly, um, you know, we have to just ensure that the monkeypox testing is covered, right, so that there isn't a barrier to, um, you know, having to pay for a test for individuals or getting some, uh, you know, extravagant bill if you go in for testing um, for what is a, a public health emergency. Right. Juba, let's talk about San Francisco Bay Area, access to tests, where are health organizations uh, falling down on the job? Well, I would say that, I mean, even with 
the San Francisco uh, city and county uh, declaring a state of emergency early uh, around this, I think that we're dealing with still with the same issues with tr uh, the, the trickle down of, of resources and the federal uh, context of uh, of a lack of advocacy around this. I think that there's lots of things that, uh, that, that I think that everything that could be done has been uh, done, but we're dealing with the same issues uh, with the lack of address um, in, the, in an early fashion in the way that this uh, needed to, to happen. We've had some uh, great success uh, with messaging. We've had some great success with the numbers uh, of people who have been exposed, who have been diagnosed. But at the same time, I mean, there's the, still the same issues about people having to wait for a test, having to uh, wait, for, wait for vaccines, and dealing with some of the same uh, barriers. And also the issues around, and we're seeing that the way that the numbers are shaking out um, in the Bay Area, again, it's uh, black and brown people who are primarily uh, affected by this. So we're addressing some of the same systemic issues, the same structural issues. We haven't had to deal with this as in intently as a lot of maybe rural jurisdictions have or in other cities have because of the experience uh, that the San Francisco Department of Health had with uh, HIV and AIDS and also with hepatitis C in controlling that, but there's still the same issues that are there at the present. Kenyon, back to you to talk about the next piece of the petition, which is vaccines, what the federal government actually has stockpiled and their failure to get it out of stockpile into the people. And then talk a little bit about, right, who's probably going to get it first, right? Because it's probably not going to be black and brown folks, and it's probably certainly not going to be black and brown uh, folks in the LGBTQ community. Right. And we've already seen that occur. So part of what happened with this vaccine. So, again, this is another kind of example of just government failure. The Genios vaccine, which has been which was developed kind of post 9-11 with, quote unquote, sort of bioterrorism uh, funding from Congress, has been around for uh, several years. Um, and yet we had doses that sat around. Um, here in the United States that they let expire, um, several million doses, if I'm not mistaken, that they just let expire. Um, and we had a stockpile of, of more vaccine um, sitting in Denmark, actually, um, while this, we were beginning to already see um, cases here in the United States. And so it was really my organization, Prep for All, and a, a few other uh, advocacy groups that literally called the federal government, um, Health and Human Services, the FDA, CDC, to a meeting um, and, and really yelled at them about um, just getting those vaccines on flights from Copenhagen to the United States so we could begin to vaccinate people as we were seeing cases rising gay men. This is in early June we were having these conversations, right? And so they started vaccinating in uh, mostly in late June when New York's um, and a lot of uh, places were having having pride. Um, but what has since happened, and one of the things that we're, you know, have been demanding is that the U.S. FDA has to certify or recognize the certification of the one manufacturer, Bavarian Nordic, to produce more vaccines for the United States, um, you know, uh, to be able to, to access them. That's already in process. But one of the other things that we're kind of in this fight about is we have like 15 million um, vaccines that just aren't filled, right? We just literally what the problem is not having the vials in place to put the actual vaccine into the vials and then ship them. So we're asking them to actually do what's called fill and finish, which is just to simply fill 
the, uh, you know, procure the vials from someplace so that then we can fill those and get those 15 million doses into the United States. One of the things that the federal government announced um, last week was, but based on a, a, a study that was done um, a few years ago, that there's a potential for being able to use less vaccine if you uh, inject it kind of just under the skin as opposed to deep in the muscle. And you would only need about a fifth of the, the dose. And so they're now beginning to move jurisdictions to, to basically expand the number of doses they can use by using this strategy. We have a lot of questions about that strategy at Prep for All and just recently put out a, a, a sort of a primer about this strategy and actually think that the best thing that they should do is actually fill the doses that they have and get them into vials and into people's arms, as opposed to um, trying to sort of stretch vaccines through uh, this other strategy, which may work, but I think could undermine the trust uh, in public health that, you know, we know is already a challenge in many black and brown communities. Right. Right. Juba, vaccine access availability here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Vaccine access in the San Francisco Bay Area has not been, if you're talking about in the broad sense, uh, it has not been uh, has has not been the best. Uh, I think that the same issue uh, that Kenya spoke to around the trust uh, within uh, black and brown communities has been an issue, not just in terms of the way that people relate to conversations that you may have heard just around COVID with uh, right. vaccines. Right. But uh, but also around the uh, the the advocacy that they have have received already. If you talk about the experience of homophobia, biphobia, and you talk about by extension and parallel uh, trans and gender nonconforming com- uh, communities um, not having uh, access, uh, in particular because the conversation has been gay, bisexual men who have sex with men, and not having a conversation about the broader context of these communities. Even if you're talking about uh, men, a lot of that is presumptively talking about cis masculine communities where you may have uh, men who have sex with men contact with trans masculine uh, people or masculine mm-hmm. center people who do not identify as male or who have an extended contact with other partners uh, across the context of gender. So that's become a problem just in two in terms of the, the misinformation that's come out, the uh, combining with the lack of understanding, combining with the lack of availability has made that a problem. And you're seeing the similar shakeout around it in the, in, in the same ways that you saw when the COVID vaccines first came out, um, that you had over, uh, overwhelmingly it was white communities and not non-white and black and brown communities who were having access, even in some, in some cases in the East Bay, um, in neighborhoods that were primarily black and brown. It was not black and brown people who were not, who were getting access to the vaccines. So it's having the stru- same structural issue that were present previously. And I, I want to talk about T-pox and treatment, but I'm also watching my time with you sort of count down. And I want to give both of you the opportunity to, to respond to this conversation that's happening about um, about messaging, right? That like you just brought up, Juba, and and how do you have targeted messaging to the LGBTQ community that says these are the dangers, um, this is how you can protect yourself, this is how you protect your community, that doesn't then get weaponized by the GOP and the right, like we're seeing, to contribute to stigmatization. Kenyan, I'll go to you first. 
Yeah, I think one of the, the issues is the reason why we're in this situation of even having to message specifically to, you know, the LGBTQ community is basically based on the government failure to roll out uh, vaccines and treatments and testing on time, right? Because at the end of the day, no, no virus is particular to any one community. Viruses will find a host um, as they are, want to do. And so um, I think that's been one of the tricky parts is having to sort of message that, you know, uh, folks in the LGBTQ community are more at risk, but only more at risk kind of right now. We already have cases documented in about half a dozen children in the United States, right? So this is not a virus that is particular to the rainbow mafia, if you will. Um, uh, so we're, but we're, so, so, but we're, we're, we're stuck in this predicament because we didn't actually roll out and, and don't frankly have a national, um, you know, kind of infrastructure to deal with these kinds of crises, even just a couple of years after COVID, we should have been able to just simply retrofit this vaccine and testing process into what we were already doing with COVID, which, you know, the sort of drive up or, you know, mobile van units going into communities or whatever. None of that has happened with monkeypox um, because of uh, government failure to act proactively to get testing, vaccine, and then T-pox, um, uh, the, the treatment for, for monkeypox into, into communities. Juba. Yes, I would say I would agree with all of that. And I would say that, uh, too, there's the, the, the issue just, again, of messaging. Um, and the politicization uh, that is happening just in terms of you just talk about culturally the way that uh, people invest in the idea that stigma will somehow make them safe. And if they don't look at it and if this doesn't happen, if this isn't happening to me in the immediate, I can uh, keep this from happening to me but to, by continuing these conversations about that are ultimately about the right kind of sex, the right kind of uh, people. If I'm that kind of person, that this will be not something to happen to me. Kenya mentioned there are about a half a dozen children. Uh, who've been infected already and trying to, to constantly uh, break up those kind of conversations. We're kind of eating an elephant, so to speak, around that. But I think that's the continued uh, advocacy that needs to happen, having these open conversations about sex and sexuality and having real conversations from the jump uh, about the difference between uh, bodily fluid transmitted uh, uh, in infections and sexually transmitted infections, their overlap, and figuring out how the ways that we, that we can encourage community to, to disseminate good information and take care of each other. Kenan, you mentioned, and um, you know, we, we should be able to retrofit a lot of these things or learn from, you know, what we just went through with the coronavirus. I mean, I'm, you know, in my late 40s, I lived through um, a good piece of the onset of the, the AIDS epidemic. What have we not, like, what have we not learned? Like, oh, well, we those not... are lessons. Those are lessons yeah. that should, you know? Yeah, so I, I think the lessons that we should have learned, I think even 40 years ago, based on the, you know, kind of HIV pandemic, and then certainly COVID more recently, is first of all, act quickly and act fast, right? get information to people as soon as possible, um, you know, so people know what the, you know, emerging infectious disease is. Tell people what you know and what you don't know, right? So that people understand when guidance changes, in some cases, as with COVID, it was a new virus. And so things we were learning kind of along the way. And I think creating that kind of transparency, like, will help people then understand when, when sort of messaging has to shift. 
Um, third thing is, it is too late to wait until there's an outbreak of something or a pandemic to start explaining to people how research works, how vaccines work, how treatments work, which is part of what fuels a lot of the myths and disinformation throughout COVID because we've disinvested in that kind of education um, in those systems for people so that we had to then kind of explain how public health works in infectious disease pandemics while we're also trying to implement those things. And then lastly, we have to have resources dedicated to a public health workforce and infrastructure that can deal with infectious diseases, whatever they are, whenever they are, and so that we don't get in a situation which is what we currently do, which is having to kind of start from scratch every time there's a new, uh, you Know, emerging uh, infectious disease. And unfortunately, because of climate change and a number of other sort of human-made disasters, we are probably going to continue to see infectious diseases spread That's that right. we have not seen before, especially in you know the global north. And so if we right. don't get serious about investing in a 21st century public health system, we will continue to make the same kinds of mistakes, right? In addition to the things Juba talked about in terms of scapegoating and blaming the communities that are at risk for a lot of structural reasons and making assumptions that there's some kind of behavioral problem with those communities instead of our public health system failure to actually engage people soon enough so that fewer people will come into contact with a virus. That's right. I have got to leave it there. I want to thank you both so much for coming on the show and hope you'll come back as we continue to cover this issue. We've been speaking to Kenyon Farrow, Managing Director of Advocacy and Organizing at Prep for All, as well as Juba Kalamka, the HIV Services Director and Prep Linkage to Care Navigator at San Francisco's St. James Infirmary. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world for all of us to thrive in. That's it for this episode, fam. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programming is funded exclusively by listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. Remember, we all we got. <laughs>